generation God gives strength in loving arms Scatters the proud of the nations In the thoughts of their hearts God takes the powerful from their thrones And lifts up the lowly God fills the hungry You're listening to Faith and Reason 360. I'm Debo Dykes. And I'm David Dykes. Depression and suicide rates are rising sharply in young Americans. Since the late 2000s, the mental health of teens and young adults in the United States has declined dramatically. Between 2009 and 2017, rates of depression among kids ages 14 to 17 increased by more than 60%. And the increases were nearly as steep among those ages 12 to 13 by like 47%. And 18 to 21 years old, 46%. And the rates roughly doubled among those ages 20 to 21. In 2017, which wasn't that long ago, the, those are the latest um, in terms of federal data that we have available to us. More than one in eight Americans ages 12 to 25 experienced a major depressive episode. Now, with social distancing, school closings, restricted mobility, loss of opportunities, all a result of this tragic and preventable COVID-19 pandemic, what does the future hold for our youth? Joining us today is the Reverend Dr. Jason Coker. Jason is the coordinator for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Mississippi and the National Director of Together for Hope and founder of Delta Hands for Hope, an award-winning nonprofit that provides meals to children around Mississippi in an effort to combat hunger, child poverty, and injustice. A child of poverty in the Mississippi Delta himself, Jason grew to pursue an education that includes a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School and a Ph.D. from Drew University. In addition to his ministry and development and engagement work in Mississippi, he continues his work as a scholar who explores post-colonial theory and critical race theory, particularly guarding the New Testament letter of James. And now, Dr. Coker has written a new book titled Faded Flowers, Preaching in the Aftermath of Suicide, which is published by Smith and Helwith. Jason, thank you for being here. Debo, thank you so much for having me. It really is an honor to to be with you again. I was talking earlier. I cannot believe it has been three years, almost to the day, since we last interviewed you. I know. It feels just like yesterday, uh, but uh, (laughs) time is a ruthless judge, and it it doesn't stop for anything. That's well said. Jason, suicide is a serious public health problem among all ages, and among youth, it exacts an enormous toll due significantly to the years of potential life lost. I read an excerpt from your new book, which was recently published. I was intrigued by the way you reported the events that led you to write the book. Will you tell us how that story got started? Yeah, I, you know, it was, um, 
we had just, I was a pastor in Wilton, Connecticut at Wilton Baptist Church, and we were gearing up for the, the season of Lent. And uh, it was 2009, <clears throat> and we had just come through the, the financial crisis, right? The Great Recession. Uh, a lot of people in our area were in finance or in business. So um, we, we were coming out of a pretty dark place, and I thought, there's really nothing happening in our church right now that is intense and heavy. So maybe this is a great season to concentrate on the concept of theodicy or, you know, why bad things happen to good people, the problem of evil, uh, and, and questions like that, because we weren't dealing with any kind of trauma. So uh, everybody, the deacons thought it was a good idea. So we put letters in the newspaper and advertised, put a banner out in front of the church uh, describing, you know, this sermon series on how we respond to pain. And Lent kind of gives itself to a contemplative space. You're supposed mm-hmm. to uh, analyze things, give up things, and uh, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. we thought it was really good. So right out of the gate, first sermon, first Sunday in Lent, uh, March 1st, 2009, I preached a sermon on defying pain. And I'm using the lectionary text to do this, and, and the passage there, you know, it really kind of lends itself to that defiance of pain. And then 3 o'clock that afternoon, I get, um, to this day, the worst call of my life uh, by a, a very close friend who is still close. Uh, I love him. And uh, he called me to tell me that his son um, had died. And um, his son was 19 years old. Uh, I was the youth minister before I was the pastor. So I had known this kid since he was in seventh grade and watched him grow up as a young man. Uh, I baptized him. Uh, and, you know, you're not supposed to have favorites as a minister, but he, he was absolutely one of my favorites. Um, and he had, uh, he had taken his own life. And he just, it, I can't. I can't describe the pain in my own life, much less witnessing the pain in his mother and father and, and brother. Um, and then we had, uh, you know, we got ready for the funeral, but I had to stare down this next five weeks of preaching sermons about how we respond to pain mm. and what had just become the most painful experience in our church's life. Um, and that experience, it wasn't long after that I realized, you know, maybe maybe that moment captured something in those sermons and those in those uh, uh, interactions that could be helpful to other people. Uh, and so the, the intent was to get these sermons, hold them together, kind of respond to them after the fact, and provide a resource uh, for, for others uh, that will face this. It's inevitable, unfortunately, that this happens, and uh, we want. I, I want there. I, I want to be able to help any kind of pastor or family or person who has to live in the wake of uh, a loved one's loss. Uh, so that's that's the nature of the book. Well, <clears throat> I was uh, in, intrigued by your plan for the Linton series. You know where you were, you were suggesting that the way to deal with pain is just walk through it, kind of you know, with bullets flying. And at least that was the that was the image that that came up in my brain. And then almost like you were wearing a safety rope, and all of a sudden it got jerked <laughs> so hard that it yeah. yanked yanked you into a whole different experience, what you meant to be a solidly reassuring promise uh, all of a sudden turned to sand in your mouth. I mean, you were really, you were struggling at the same level they were. Yeah, sand in your mouth is right. I, I mean, um, I... Look, I'm a decade older, over a decade older now. So um, I was fairly young as a pastor, mm-hmm. as pastors go. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that I completely felt inadequate mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to do this as a human being. I, I don't know what prepares you for those kind of moments mm-hmm. that would make you feel adequate, but mm-hmm. um, there were several moments in my life as a pastor where I looked, I was, something happened. Uh, well, I mean, you know, Sandy Hook happened, and that was only about 15 miles from where wow. our church was. Oh, wow. So we had a lot, you know, 9-11, oh. the bombing, Sandy Hook. Uh, big national things had yes. happened as well, and uh, and and I found myself in in all those spaces and in this particular space in our congregation, looking for someone to follow. Like who who's got the answers mm-hmm. for me? Uh, and what happened? I turned around and I realized that everybody was looking at me. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! And that those moments were these uh, terrifying, profound realizations that I inhabited an office that was supposed to give guidance to people mm-hmm. and I better find guidance for them. <laughs> right? yeah. I mean, uh, but at the same time, you know, I, uh, in this particular circumstance, I, yeah, I, it was a suffering that I had never, and I had lost family members, but not a 19 year old kid in our church. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that was just a whole different kind of right. loss. So I was grieving and suffering the loss of somebody I loved, uh, but also leading a congregation and a family mm-hmm. who was uh, also in the most pain they'd ever experienced in their yeah. life. Right. And that is a real contradiction and, and almost paradox where you are suffering along with, but at the same time, all the eyes are looking at you for mm-hmm. guidance and leadership. Mm-hmm. And those sermons, uh, I mean, those are pretty honest sermons about how to deal with pain. And, and uh, I, I mean, we were dealing with it in real time every Sunday. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, it was tough. Jason, um, do you mind telling us a little about Chet? Tell us... Um, Tell us about uh, him and his involvement uh, in the church, in your youth program. Um, tell us more so we can kind of get an understanding about who Chet was and as a young adult, as a young person. Oh, man. Chet was a... He was so much fun. <laughs> uh, he was a fun kid, big personality, uh, lots of ups, lots of downs. Uh, but I remember that the first time they visited our church, it was on a Wednesday night, and he came to like Wednesday night youth group stuff. And I hit it off right away with him. He was in seventh grade, lots of fun. And I think it was that weekend. He called me and he was like, "Hey, I'm in trouble." Oh no! <laughs> he, he had gotten trouble at like a school dance or something like that, and so oh. I was like, "All right, well, let's you know, let's try to figure this thing out." And so he uh, called you. you know, he called you. He did. Oh wow! He did. It was kind of like, "Hey, you're the new minister. <laughs> We're going to go to your church. Uh, <laughs> I need your help." And so, you know, it, it was. Uh, you know, Frederick Beekner talks about the difference between an AA program and church. That in church, you come in and say, I'm doctor, these are the live publications, this is how great everything is. But in AA, you start off with, my name is Jason, and, I, and I'm an alcoholic. You start mm-hmm. off with, like, the worst part of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Chet, uh, it was funny because he came in like, this is who I really am, right? And he was in seventh grade, young kid, right? Uh, yeah. But already had a good idea of who he was. And, uh, oh, my, I just had so much fun with him on all the youth trips. Uh, his family was just integral leaders of our congregation, Um and they had a pool, so lots of pool parties at their house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with just a lot of lived experience. So he was a lot of fun. Had a lot of friends across sectors. Uh, he stood up for the underdog. He he did kind of cross boundaries between all the different high school uh, groups, and had a real close knit uh, of friends that that I got to be a part of because he was like, you know, he was. A, He's a tattoo. He's a tough kid uh, into punk rock and in a, in, a, in a rock band. He played the guitar in his rock band. 
or punk band, excuse me. Uh, uh-huh. And he was just like, hey, guys, this is my pastor. I love him. You're going <laughs> to love him, too. So I ended up uh, drinking coffee on, you know, on a weekly basis with about 15 kids out in front of Starbucks who were complete misfits, and wonderfully so. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, and, you know, when, when this happened, um, I was already their pastor at some level and uh, really walked through that space with them. Uh, it was one of the coolest things that was both uh, painful and fun was after the funeral was over, after the graveside was done, a lot of those kids came to our church uh, and just hung out in the parking lot. And we had a big parking lot. And one of them said, hey, Jason, can we like do donuts in the parking lot? (laughs) And this was like something Chet would have done, right? And I was like, absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) It's probably terrible. You should probably never do that. But oh. those kids did donuts, and it was, and they were crying and laughing at the same time. Uh, it was, um, it was another important moment. Yeah. Um, Jason, were there any signs? Um, I'm sure you were with Jet um, pretty much on a weekly basis, and I'm wondering those last few. Uh, meetings or gatherings that you had with Chet, were there any signs or any symptoms that you reflect back on that you might have missed? Yeah, I am in hindsight, uh, there's a lot of those moments, but even in those moments, um, you know, he had a, he had a big personality and, um, he 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 did get in trouble. There's no getting around that, and, and that, yeah, I, it's in the book. So um, he even had to go to jail for about a month over the Christmas break, missed his brother's birthday, and um, I talked about going to visit him in jail, uh, and his parents did too, so that we'd have somebody there with him at least you know a couple times a week. Yeah. So yeah, I mean he had, he had a, a lot of ups and a lot of downs, and. Um, that was a part of who he was and he would say some dark things, but he was also a poet and a lyricist that was, um, there, he had a lot of wisdom in his poetry and, and song lyrics that was uncanny for a kid his age. He, he had real wisdom there. Um, so there, there are definitely those moments, even, uh, even the day it happened, um, I was at home after that first sermon uh, and saw a post of his on Facebook. It was really dark. And um, and a, another kid from town responded to him in a really good way, like, you know, like, I love you. You know, that's okay. And I almost called him right then, and I didn't. Hmm. And the next phone call I was on was with his father. Wow. And hmm. that, um, that haunts me. It has haunted me. It'll it'll be a haunt in my life. I know. Um, so, um, the way it's shifted, the way I do stuff is like if I ever think about somebody, like I need to call them, I call them. Or if I see anything like that, I respond immediately. Right. I do not right. hesitate uh, from here on out. But the reason I didn't respond is because you know that wasn't unusual for him uh, to to do that. But uh, because you never know, um, uh, I'm much more um, active in responding to folks mm-hmm. uh, after that experience. When uh, uh, Debo and I lived in Denver, we were very active. In fact, she was on staff of St. John's Cathedral uh, there. And at, during one period, she was the director of the uh Youth, youth program and so because I was her helper we got so close to these kids uh, from mm-hmm. from the fifth grade through high school into college and uh, one of our I say one of our girls that was in that program was a wonderful sweet uh, intelligent spirit and uh, she 
she took her own life. And it it had some of the same impact on the congregation that I that I hear your experience did. And what we all seemed to feel at that time was just totally robbed, you know, just stolen from. And I just wonder if that was any part of your experience. Absolutely. Even now, I mean, um, when the book came out, you know, the publishers write a a, a little something about your book, kind of Mm -hmm. explaining what the book is. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that little piece, it talks about moving towards healing. And I I mean, I, I really, there's a lot of things I wanted to do in this book, but Primarily, I absolutely wanted to honor Chet and his family because mm-hmm. I, I mean I love them. I love them. Mm-hmm. I hear and uh, his mom texted me and she goes, "I don't think there is healing after this." Mm-hmm. She had a problem with that yeah. moving towards healing, and yeah. I hear that. I mean that is loud and clear, and um, I think there's hope towards healing. But there's also something that has been traumatically shifted in your life, and there's mm-hmm. a loss and uh, and uh, void, uh, a absence that's going to be there forever in perpetuity, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. until we're not here. Mm-hmm. And that is a visceral uh, truth, I, I think, um, that that loss w- will never be accounted for. But, um, you know, another great Mississippi writer right now is Jasmine Ward, and so many of her books deal with loss and, and death. And uh, in one of her books, uh, I think The, the men, we, men We Reap, uh, she talks about kind of in the, in the end of that book that loss, <clears throat> as great as it is, can't define us. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a part of us, but it doesn't define who we are, mm-hmm. uh, or it'll crush us. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, there is some real truth and, and wisdom in uh, Jasmine's words there that I that I hold on to. Yes, um, because it does. I mean, your life has changed, and it'll never be the same. It, so there is no um, going back. Uh, and even you have to be careful about, you don't move on, uh, you move forward, mm-hmm. uh, carrying this with you. Mm-hmm. And, and um, not long after this happened, uh, the, the, the parents, uh, we were on a mission trip down here to Mississippi, and uh, we were in the Delta, and uh, a woman whose son I grew up with had, had died in a car wreck when we were teenagers. And we were in it. We ended up having dinner at her house. She cooked for our whole mission team. And when we got into her house, I realized, oh my word! Yeah, you know, here's two mothers that had lost kids almost at the exact same age, different differently, but you know, yes. they carry that loss. Yes, and they started talking, and that came out, and and there was just uh, this. Uh, I watched everybody stop and just watch them talk to each other. And uh, the kid I grew up with, his mother said that when it first happened, she felt like there was a thousand pound block of ice sitting on her heart. Mm-hmm. And over the years, that that block melted down to about a ten pound block of ice, mm-hmm. and that just is with her from you know yeah. in perpetuity. Yeah, and um, it was such a you know years later I, that is still true. Uh, yes, she is. That is true. You know, Jason. I ask about any signs or symptoms that you may have seen, and so often I wonder how well do we understand what behavior in youth signals suicidal risk. And David mentioned our experience um, in Denver at St. John's Cathedral, I was director of youth ministry. And I want to say a little bit about that experience as well, because I'm wondering, all, all three of us actually being ordained, um, there are probably 
many, many of ordained individuals who have had to deal with the loss of a young person to suicide. Um, and Diane, the young, the young teenager that I was youth director to, she was part of a very close group of youth. We were very active, I'm sure, just as you have described in your experience. And David and I would take these children um, on overnight trips, camped out, uh, went whitewater rafting in the Colorado mm-hmm. River. Um, just so many experiences. She was a camp counselor for many years uh, during cathedral camp. And her influence and her compassion for these young children that she helped be a camp counselor for um, was so touching, um, the maturity level and the ability to understand and be sympathetic with these young children when they were homesick because many had never been away from home before they actually attended cathedral camp. And Diane was actually with me the day before she committed suicide. And um, she, we had an area, we, it was called the Bowling Alley, which the only reason why I got that name is because it was on the third floor, the top floor of the cathedral, which was an old, massive cathedral in Denver. It took up an entire block in the city of Denver. And um, the, it was called the Bowling Alley because it was long and narrow. And um, it almost went the length of that wing of the cathedral. And Diane was with me all day cleaning out the bowling alley. We were straightening. We were disregarding things that we knew we wouldn't use anymore. We were organizing. And not once was there, for me, a sign that she was experiencing any depression, any difficulty. And I have gone back through my mind thousands of times to try to look again. Did I miss it? Was there something? And I missed it. And that block of ice you speak of, Diane, I have a picture of her on my office desk to this very day, her with the other beautiful youth, young girls that were all part of my youth program. And um, she was so, so special. Um, during her sermon, she, she, her mother wanted her cremated. Um, so Susan had her cremated, and um, they brought the ashes to the cathedral. Um, and the minute the ashes arrived, I was called to come downstairs and they handed me the ashes. They were yet to be put in the urn. Um, and I, they were, the warmth of Diane's presence could be felt in that container of her remains. And the cathedral was under construction. We had a massive, major reconstruction of the cathedral going on. And so I walked down and outside into the area where all of this construction was, but it was the only private place I could find. And I sat, it was next to All Souls Walk, which was the um, where we put the ashes. And I sat there with her and talked to Diane and shared with her memories of the times that we had spent together. Um, and... It was such a profound experience, so I can certainly relate to what you're saying. And and one more thing, um, Elizabeth Randall, who was a dear, dear friend, she was um, canon for education at the cathedral. And Reverend Elizabeth Randall gave, delivered the homily during Diane's uh, service. And I'll never, ever, ever forget her words. So often, religion 
puts such a negative connotation mm -hmm. to young people or anyone who commits suicide as if they have wronged God, which I think is a horrific, horrible um, impression to leave with anyone who has lost a loved one to suicide. I think it's just the opposite. I think that it should elicit compassion yeah. uh, for those individuals who obviously were suffering far beyond anything we could ever have imagined. Okay. But Elizabeth, in her sermon, she mentioned that, and she looked at everyone, and the cathedral was standing room only. And she looked out at everyone, and in order to destroy that kind of concept of God's um, disapproval, she looked out at everyone and she said, do you know what God thinks about? Do you know what God feels in regard to suicide? And she said, I will tell you, at this moment, God weeps with that loss of that young person. God weeps. And that stays with me to this very day. So yeah. back to this other, um, I'm sure, Jason, that there are many, many stories of the loss of these young lives. And I wish we could figure out what's going on or what's driving mm -hmm. these trends. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in some of the recovery work uh, that uh, some of our uh, some community folks did uh, after this, the congregational church actually had a, a, a teen suicide uh, recovery type uh, seminar where they had this expert come in, and she said, "Don't should yourself." <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's a great don't mm. should yourself, mm -hmm. uh, or don't should yourself to death. Uh, you know, I should have, should have, they should have. Uh, don't do that. You know, try to steer clear from that. Uh, and and then the the sermon, the the funeral sermon for Chet, um, which I, I'm going to tell you, I was uh, I was such a mess. Uh, a pastor, George Mason from Wilshire Baptist Church, uh, I worked there for a little while, and uh, he knew this had happened, and he sent me a, a sermon, and he goes, "Hey, listen, uh, this this is this. Hopefully, this can help you." So, like all the best points of the sermon. Mm -hmm. Uh, was from him, right? I mean, I, I didn't have the mental capacity even to come up with some of that stuff. But in, a, in it was, uh, you know, don't judge Chet by his last and worst decision. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important when, you, when you're trying to wrap your head around someone who's taken their own life. Don't judge them. And, mm -hmm. and, and don't judge them based on their last and worst decision because mm -hmm. God's not going to judge them yes. on their last and worst decision. Yeah, you know, there's got to be, God's got to be bigger than that. And, and I hope we can too. The other part is uh, in the process, forgive the person who's done this. Uh, we have mm -hmm. to come to a place of forgiveness uh, mm -hmm. for the person. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, our, the other part is forgive ourselves. Uh, for the things we, we didn't do or the things we did do, uh, we have to forgive ourselves of that and then forgive each other, you know, uh, instead of projecting blame on somebody. Well, if they hadn't done this, if they would have done that, uh, find forgiveness there too. Because uh, without forgiving the person, yourself, or each other, we really do uh, get stuck in a grief that uh, can be deadly to mm -hmm. us. So, uh, I think those are important, uh, especially uh, the, the layer of kind of bad religion on top of a loss uh, that mm -hmm. just compounds grief and compounds trauma instead of uh, instead of um, you know providing love and care and a movement towards healing. Uh, it's, well, it's what you say, like what you say, and how you write, Jason, is so real, and I I am. Uh, forced to leave the room when someone says, oh, we don't cry because we know that mother is with God, and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah. And it just always sickens me. It, it doesn't allow humans to be human. 
Yes. And it's just so anyway, I'm grateful to you for for your willingness to be so straightforward. Well, I found what I don't want to believe in a God that isn't you know, that that doesn't care about this, right? Uh, or punishes stuff like this. I don't I don't believe in a God like that. No. And um and the reason I don't is because uh, I know human beings that are better than that. And God's got to be better than the best person I know. Yeah. So, um, and I found those uh, in that dark cloud, there was light busting through all the time. Mm-hmm. In that larger community, a uh, larger religious community there in Wilton, um, uh, when when all the people left the, for the funeral to do the great side, we we just our church was uh, you know open and just there, and people from the local synagogue, Temple Bnei Chaim, and the Presbyterian Church, uh, Wilson Presbyterian, came to our our sanctuary to make sure everything was safe and sound and nobody would come and bother anything. Wow! Uh, and the congregational church gave us uh, like 200 chairs to fill up our fellowship hall to have an overflow room. Mm. And they set up uh, a closed circuit video and audio so the people in that room could, could watch the, the uh, sermon uh, on the screen. And uh, when I came back, the congregational church was there and the Presbyterian church in the synagogue was taking down all the chairs and, and moving them out of our sanctuary. Wow. And, I saw God in that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We, 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 people were present when, with us when we weren't even there. Mm-hmm. People were present with us, caring for us, loving us, doing these acts of mercy and kindness when we weren't even there. Um, and I feel like that is how God is with us. Uh, God suffers with us. God mm-hmm. uh, hurts with us through it. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe I do. I believe in that God for sure. Yes. Yeah, I suppose that's part of what you mean in the sermon when you describe redeeming pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that was uh, so. That 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 chapter in the book and that sermon is real interesting. Um, when I submitted this to the publishers, uh, they gave it a green light. I started putting everything together. And the, the old computer that I had all this stuff on died, and I lost oh. everything. Oh, and, horrible. And I was terrified. And, you know, I'm dumb for not backing it up, all that. Well, um, I found a – I had actually found all the sermons printed out, uh, a, a, like a written document, a hard copy of that. And I was like, oh, God, thank you, you know. And then in the process of moving offices, I lost that document. And and I had already kind of rewritten everything. And like from that hard copy to my uh, computer, I had everything except that sermon, Redeeming Pain. And, you know, what do you do when like the last most crucial sermon uh, isn't there? So I rewrote the sermon um, and it didn't try to rewrite it like I would have written it then. I just rewrote it. Mm-hmm. And and then I was going to write a response. And then I found that hard copy. And, oh, know, wow. And, and the finding was pretty emotional. But then I, when I laid that original sermon down to the sermon that I written a decade later, it, it was, um, it really was a holy moment because they were very similar, down mm. to the quotes I used from different sources. Mm-hmm. I used the same source and the same quotes out of the same book and mm. didn't realize it. Wow. Um, and it was different. It's a totally different sermon, but also very similar mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually kind of described that uh, experience. And even that, that was, that felt like, God breaking in, even a decade later. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm, yes. <laughs> it, was, it was the goodness of God showing God's love uh, in the midst of, of creating the manuscript for publication. Mm. You know, Jason, I want to ask about depression among young people. Um, I read recently that um, in a study that was 
information and data that was collected that more than 600,000 people um, by this National Survey on Drug Use and Health, um, Mental Health, that the rate of depression is so much larger among young people than people actually realize. And I'm wondering, in your continued work with young people, um, and especially minorities, do you have, because I also read that um, in, the, in the minority population, uh, especially in the black communities, that there is actually an increase, attempts, not necessarily deaths, but like there's a 73% increase in suicidal attempts. And I'm wondering what's causing today's young people so much anguish? It is, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, and, and I'm going to be real honest with you. I, I'm not an expert in, in, in this. I mean, this is uh, a memoir from a pastor who, who really loved somebody and loves Bill. But so, so I, you know, I, I'll, I, I definitely have a response to you, but I do want to kind of preface it with that. Certainly. What I'm about to say is anecdotal, you know. Yes. Uh, but um, a lot of the work that we do in poverty around the country uh, in the Delta region, in the Black Belt region, in Appalachia, in the Rio Grande Valley, in Native lands. Um, the layer of poverty and racism is very deep, yes. and it is very real. Yes. And children grow up in, uh, in, in poverty. They grow up in a racist system. Uh, and it is hard to develop a sense of self-worth in those spaces. Now, those those spaces of pressure and intense intensity does create a lot of resilience. There's no getting around that. I mean, it's spectacular stories. And the people who come out of those spaces are powerful, powerful people and have an incredible sense of will. But uh, in Mississippi in particular, I, I think of Mississippi as this crucible where you have kind of an educated, wealthy elite that is, a, you know, not part of it. And then the vast majority of everybody else is being crushed to dust yes. by uh, the social economic situation here. And who's not crushed to dust emerges as the most iron-willed good and evil people you'll ever meet. Oh, wow. And so we, 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 we fight good and evil every day here. But that kind of intensity does crush people. There's just no getting around it. Yep. And uh, it dramatically affects uh, African Americans uh, more simply because of the um, layers of white superiority and white supremacy that is indicative of our overall society. Um, I mean, when you when you're told you're less than a human being mm -hmm. from the kind of by the schools you go to, the flag that flies over your state, uh, etc., uh, that is a lot to overcome. And at some point, many people begin to believe those narratives because you're not wealthy or you don't have much. You're less valuable because you're you're not white. You're less valuable because mm -hmm. X Y Z, right? Yep. Uh, so uh, that takes a toll on anybody, sure. much less children who are growing up in that crucible of racism and poverty. I mean, that is a, a tough, tough scenario. Yes. So you add to that anything, much less a global pandemic or, right. you know, what if what if that kid is uh, within the LGBTQIA plus community, right? What if uh, you just add any other thing to that? Or, like, what does it mean to be a woman in that, in that mm -hmm. same kind of social? Mm -hmm. I mean, just every single thing beyond that is just another part of the crucible. Yes. And uh, as, the, as the, this country goes, all the policies we've passed since Ronald Reagan began his presidency have been for the wealthy, for the haves, mm -hmm. uh, outside of the Affordable Care Act. It's the only national policy that has favored people who are not primarily wealthy. Yes. So 
we don't live in a country that they, they might say one thing, but they don't actually care for the most vulnerable in this society. Uh, and haven't at least for forty years. Yes, uh, and I would say has never. So uh, when you're a kid, and the kids aren't stupid, they know that. They they see that. They live that experience every day. So um, those those things are definitive in the rural poverty work that we do uh, in all of our regions, uh, and and in those regions that I described, we have white, primarily white people in Appalachia. African Americans in the Black Belt and the Delta, uh, uh, Latino Latina along the Rio Grande Valley, and Native uh, Americans in Native lands. So mm-hmm. in that in that place of rural poverty, it's white, black, brown, and Native. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So these are all systemic problems. So such as racism, yeah, and poverty, uh, police involved shootings that um, involve black victims. These yeah. could certainly be driving these numbers because it, um, it, the young people could easily develop a sense of hopelessness. Yeah. And look, that sense of hopelessness, I just want to, I mean, the, the poverty we're talking about, I, we got, I go to my hometown in Shaw, Mississippi, right in the middle of the Delta. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a great organization there ran by Chiquita Fountain, uh, Delta Answer Hope, uh, and we work closely with the school system. So we were in the school during a water ban that had lasted for 11 months. You couldn't, you couldn't drink the water. Wow. Uh, wow. When was this, Jason? Just a couple of years ago, and that, it, didn't, it, didn't make, it didn't make local news. I mean, it was just like, yeah, this happens all the time. So what that a whole school system doesn't have water oh. through the school through the school year, and it was just after the school year. So we were in there painting rooms and stuff, and I went to the bathroom in the boys' bathroom at Mac Evans Elementary. There was only one urinal left on the wall; the other two had crumbled, oh. and it was wrapped up in plastic. Um, the stall, the door wasn't on one of the stalls. And then there was there were places for three sinks. There was only one sink and no mirror. Oh, and and look, these are this town. They are doing the best they can. This is the best they can do, right? Because of the way the state of Mississippi underfunds public schools, yes. especially schools like that in the town. Yes, of course. And I'm sitting here going, if you were a little kid and you go to the bathroom here, what does this bathroom tell you your worth? Yep. What sure does this would. public school say to children every day? This is how much the state of Mississippi cares for you. Yes. I mean, and, and we wonder why there's, you know, uh, it, you know, why all the looting? Why, why, is, why are people burning things to the ground? Well, like, what are they burning to the ground? I mean, what have they been told all their lives about their own value as a human being? Uh, now, I know this is tangential to... Uh, the, the nature of what we're talking about with the book, but uh, I see that every day, and it's not just in Shaw, Mississippi. It's across the state of Mississippi. Yes. It's up and down the Mississippi River. It's all across the Black Belt from Alabama to Virginia. It's all through Appalachia. It's in every county along the Texas-Mexico border. It's it's endemic through uh, reservations across this country, and it's just a narrative over and over again to these children. You're, you are worthless. I don't know now. how I don't know how Cindy Hyde Smith or Tate Reeves or any of these elected officials who refuse to yeah. f- adequately fund public education, I don't know how they put their head right. on their pillow at night and sleep. That's exactly right. And to tell these same kids, and guess what? Go back to school. In the middle of a pandemic. In the middle of a pandemic. And if you do it online and you're in the Delta, you don't have broadband. You don't have uh, high-speed internet. So guess what your online education is going to look like? And I guarantee you at the end of this school year, when things are really bad, they're going to look at those same schools and say, see, they're failing schools. They don't even deserve the money. I mean, that's the kind of, uh, and that is, it is racist to the core. Absolutely. So um, when I think about, teenagers who grew up in that environment and their mental health 
and 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 so many of the teenagers that we deal with are just really great kids who are fun to be around. Who we have a kid right now who grew up in Shaw, grew up in through Delta Hanford Hope, and he's a junior at Mercer University. Uh, doing photography and religion as a major. E. Ladarius Phillips, incredible young man, love him. And uh, he's fun. He's fun to be around. And he grew up in that environment. He's like, yeah, you know what? That's how it was. But we just, you know, did the best we could. And I mean, the, the kids, uh, for the most part, aren't resentful about it. Um, they just accept it as it is and, and mm. do their best. Mm. Uh, they're, they're heroes. They're heroes. Yes. And we don't even talk about them. What's so interesting to me is that in the population in Mississippi that has these attitudes of white supremacy and you find that they are angry when they talk about people on welfare or people in health care or whatever, they're angry. They talk as if these people are robbing them of what is rightfully theirs. Now, that is so strange and peculiar when I would don't have to be very brave to say that 95% of this group we're talking about consider themselves to be deeply faithful to, to Christianity. Absolutely. And how the mind can compartmentalize that way First of all, how they can translate historical Jesus into hating Muslims and people of color and all the rest. It's just, it's almost like a social psychosis where everything is turned around backwards. They look at, at poverty and they have no compassion. Uh, I mean, that's just really kind of an insanity that... Because if their children were exposed to this sort of thing, they would be burning down something. No. So, and I I mean, it's the the I think the opioid epidemic is is proof of that, right? Uh, Where mm -hmm. the so many of in in that population are white and not coming out of you know impoverished areas so much, and so. I was at a conference out in Stanford University several years ago, and this woman was speaking, and she said, you know, she's an African-American woman. She said, hey, listen, guys, we've got to help our white brothers and sisters because they're losing their children to the opioid epidemic. Mm. We've mm. got to help them. Uh, we got to help the white community and save their children. Wow. Uh, and she said, but the truth is, 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, if the white community had looked to the black community and said, hey, we got to help our black brothers and sisters because the crack is killing their children. That's mm-hmm. right. Crack is claiming a whole generation of children, and we've got to help them save their children. He said, she said if they would have done that, they would have a model now to save their own children. Mm-hmm. But instead, they criminalized our children mm-hmm. and put them in prison for it. Absolutely. Uh, it was uh, it was a very pertinent moment there, and I'll never be able to forget that. And that's the kind of human compassion that, given now, will benefit everybody now and into the future. Yes. And I don't know how we're blinded to that. Uh, and I don't know how many lives could be saved if we moved into that kind of generosity of spirit. Um and again, I mean, we're, we're t- uh, I know we're, we're uh, I can get on a soapbox about poverty uh, because I do that every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not, I mean, they're the mental health issues among uh, people who live in poverty uh, are accentuated for sure. Um, Jason, as we begin to bring our podcast to a close, you mentioned in the forward in your book, because I want to come back to the book, I want to make sure that people know how to um, purchase your book, and um, it sounds like a, such a valuable source, but you mentioned, you say, um, we will never know what was going through Chet's mind, but he will never be far from our minds, and certainly not far from our hearts. 
I lost a beloved friend. His family lost a beloved son, brother, grandson, and nephew. So reflecting um, on Chet and your new book, Faded Flowers, I'd like for you to kind of bring us uh, to a closing, uh, speaking a little bit more about that book. Well, I, I mean, my, my greatest hope is that if anybody is contemplating hurting themselves or taking their own lives, uh, that it's hearing this right now. I hope um, that if, if this book was nothing but a vehicle for this person listening right now to hear this, I want them to know that this world needs them mm-hmm. and that they are loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the world will be better and the people who know them will be better if they hold on mm-hmm. and reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if we can prevent um, anybody from harming themselves, then uh, that, that's, a, that's a grand goal. Mm-hmm. Knowing that, that you know, um, this will happen, if this can be a resource for those who lose somebody, um, and and one of the books that I quote in the last sermon is uh, called Broken Open. And it's, it's a pretty good book, but the quote says that the arc of somebody else's lives can be a path for us to follow. And uh, I, I think that our, like my story and our congregation story, this family story of moving through this, and, and we're still here. We're, a decade later, we're still doing can provide hope from those who are suffering acutely in the moment. Mm-hmm. That um, as they read this, they can they can find their grief and our grief, um, and hear their hear our grief and theirs. And uh, chapter by chapter and step by step, they can move into uh, a new future that uh, is uh, still life. But there's there's still goodness too. Uh, mm-hmm. There's places to laugh, um, and and life continues to happen, and mm-hmm. it, and it can it can be good. It can even be good, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes that's really hard to believe. But yeah. um, you know, I, I hope the, the book can do something like that. And also, pastors who have to do these things, man, uh, I, I do hope pastors. Uh, I, you know, I don't think anybody goes to seminary uh, and thinks that that thinks about having to preach funerals of, of, uh, of something like this. And so it uh, usually catches them off guard yeah. and they scramble. So yeah. if, if this could be a, a tool in like a pastoral care class or a mm-hmm. sermon writing class or something like that. Um, you know, and, and it could lodge in their mind so that when this happens in their careers, they can pull it out as a resource. Uh, yeah, uh, I hope all those things are true with it. And for those who would like to purchase Jason's book, Faded Flowers, Preaching in the Aftermath of Suicide, it is available on Amazon. Is that correct, Jason? That's correct. It's uh, uh, available both in, in uh, print or Kindle on Amazon, uh, and you can also buy it uh, at the publishers at Smith & Health. And that's just hellwith.com. Excellent. Um, well, Jason, I promise we will not wait three years to <laughs> hear from you again. You're such a resource and such um, a valuable presence in the state of Mississippi, I know you are making a tremendous impact on so many lives. Yes. Yes. And I'm, thank, thank I'm really uh, amazed at, at the reach of all the work you do, which is just terrific. Well, and David, thank you, as thank always. You. And Jason, any closing words or thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'm, I'm grateful for um, you and David, I, I'm grateful for you guys having me on. Um, the, the work I do is only possible because of allies like you guys and so many others uh, across the state and country. Um, I'm grateful for you. So thank you for having me. Well, today. thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. 
Well, thank you for listening. This has been a production of the D.L. Dykes Jr. Foundation, producers of Faith and Reason seminars and educational programming. Additional funding is provided by the Wendland Cook Foundation. For home study materials designed to broaden one's awareness, please visit our website at www.faithandreason.org. Remembering mercy According to the promise To those he made before To Sarah, to Abraham To Hagar To their children's children Evermore